Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. How does music affect our emotions according to science? With changes in environments, moods and scenarios, how is it that music impacts us so? Professor Sarah Wilson is head of school, Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Sarah is an internationally recognised expert in cognitive neuroscience and neuropsychology. Her research program has advanced our understanding of the neural basis of human cognition and behaviour. Professor Sarah Wilson sat down for a Zoom chat to talk about her work with Dr Andy Horvath. Tell us about your research. What are you into? So I have two streams of research. One is in the broad area of cognitive neuroscience, um, and it focuses specifically on music neuroscience, so music in the brain. And the other area is more clinically um, focused, and it looks at how we can use psychological strategies, including music, to rehabilitate people after brain injury. So looking at the relationship between mind and brain and what happens when we have a brain injury. Okay, connect for us the experience of listening to music and our brain. The experience of music is really a whole brain activity. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. When we're listening to music, what we see when we put people in the scanner is that large areas of their brain light up, both hemispheres. And that's because music involves many different networks or systems in the brain. So if you think about a tune coming into your head, perhaps you're driving down the road and you hear it on the radio and you want to identify what that tune is. Of course, it comes in via our ears and it, at a very basic level, activates the auditory system, the sound processing system of the brain. But from there, a whole lot of complex additional processes happen. We might also have a visualisation of the sound or images that go with that, so it'll activate our visual system. We might want to move along as we're listening to the music, so it'll activate our motor system. We might actually want to call up the words that go with the song, so it'll activate our language system. We might actually want to plan on singing the next note to make sure it's in tune with what we're hearing. And so it'll activate our frontal systems, our organisational and planning and working memory systems, holding the tune in mind. And of course, if it's one of our favourite songs and has a lot of emotions for us, it will activate our emotional network. And in that very simple act of listening to that tune on the radio, all of those systems come to play as we engage in the music. So it's a a very broad activating activity and that's why it's being dubbed the food of neuroscience because by looking at all of those systems that are switching on at once, we can get a really good understanding of how the brain works. The brain is such a complex organ. It's got neural connections, it's got hormones running around. No doubt it activates some of our emotional areas because I know we use music to either make ourselves feel a bit up or perhaps even ground ourselves. Yeah, so I think this is 
a really important feature of music. There's all sorts of debate in the research literature as to why we are even musical. And when we think about music, it is something unique to being human. When we look at other species, animals, they don't really use music in the way that we do. They might have song or calls, but these are more simple for mating purposes or the like. No other species uses a complex musical system like we do. And one of the theories as to why we have it is because it is such a powerful inroad into our emotional systems. So there's very nice studies now showing that music provides this direct line into the reward system of the brain, the dopamine system, which we know makes us feel good when we activate that system. But it also is really, when you think about music, it's the uh, language of emotion. So it often captures things that are very hard to put into words. So perhaps we're feeling nostalgic or a little bit forlorn or under the weather. We'll put on music as a means of helping us explore and release those types of moods as well. And there's this really interesting observation in the literature, it's called the music paradox, that no other activity will people seek out something sad to really focus in on, um, and that will be their preferred or most liked music, is sad music. So it's a complex activity that we use to regulate our emotions, and as you said, we can either use it to pick us up when we are a bit flat, to help us explore feelings, and to express those in socially acceptable ways or to help us calm down when we're stressed out or frustrated. And we can see that in you know, early development, mothers will use music with their babies to help regulate their mood. Um, and it's something then that we also use in social groups to help regulate the bonding and the emotional connection of social groups. So this is a very powerful core aspect of music and it's related to its ability to directly influence hormonal release in the brain. Yeah, that community vibe of music, whether it be community choirs or community ukulele groups or whatever, really is good for the soul. But can music actually make us smarter? There was a time when my friends had babies and I used to buy Mozart for babies, <laughs> this CD I used to give out as presents for, for new, new families. Can it make us smarter? So this is a very interesting period in music neuroscience where perhaps the hype and the excitement of the reporting of music uh, findings took over the actual science um, which underpinned the basis of those findings and these catch cries like music makes you smarter appeared in the media and I think in the US in the state of Georgia the governor deemed it mandatory that every newborn baby gets sent home with a, a Mozart CD or something to that effect. So yeah we did a study looking at that at the time actually and whilst there was some suggestion that when you listened to music if you then performed some kind of IQ or cognitive test afterwards, the kids who'd listened to Mozart versus the kids who'd listened to something else or maybe had just done it in silence 
they did a better job. And, and this was the original basis on what this finding was, um, you know, claiming to show. However, um, we did a, a replication study and we couldn't replicate that effect once we took the impact of mood into account. So what we found when we repeated the experiment was that when we picked music that really enhanced the children's mood, in fact, it was that that drove their better performance on their subsequent, you know, intelligence test rather than Mozart per se. And we, we, we interpreted that as a motivational or an emotional driver. We know that we learn and perform better when we're feeling good and confident in ourselves. And it, it seems that the music created a great learning environment rather than Mozart specifically altering neuronal firing or functioning in such a way to enhance performance. Having said that, though, there are some studies that do indicate that the synchronous rate or the timing of the notes and the patterns in Mozart has some particular affinity with the synchronous firing of uh, groups uh, of neurons in the brain and that that's what uh, allows for its benefits. But I think there's just not enough evidence at this point to substantiate that one way or another. The other finding that I think is more robust, though, in this area was a group of studies done by researchers in Canada. And what they did, very interestingly, was that they enrolled young children in a study which had three arms. Either they learnt piano lessons, and they did this for 12 months, so it had a longitudinal component, or they just did um, life as usual, or they enrolled them in some other kind of art-based activity or drama. And what they found at the end of this study, which was more compelling, was that the children who had engaged in the piano lessons versus the children in the other two groups, they were performing better on tests of general intelligence. And the question around that is, to what extent did music practice a discipline of learning or prime the brain for learning? And so this is, a, I think, an interesting and exciting new area in the field that is kind of running this idea that idea that music primes the brain for plasticity or flexibility of learning. It is metaplastic, if you like, and that's a new area that's kind of spun out of this that I think will be very interesting. So is there a critical window for music development? So that's a really good question, Andy, and one that um, people often ask me, you know, should I be starting my child in music lessons at a particular age in order to get the maximum benefits. And the answer to that is slightly complex. So the literature, and we've done a work, uh, a large amount of work summarising, you know, there's been over 100 or so studies now looking at the way music changes the brain. And it changes the brain both in terms of the size of particular areas, so more neurons will be devoted to that particular area and so it will be larger and you can measure that in terms of the volume of cells on the brain scan or it might alter the connectivity between different areas so more of the white matter fibers that join the different gray matter areas um, it'll show greater connectivity and we did a mapping of the musician's brain and compared it to a non-musician's brain. And those changes in volume and connectivity are, again, spread across the brain 
in many of those different areas that I spoke about earlier, those networks that we talked about, but also the connectivity between those networks. And this set of findings is particularly true of people who commence training early in life. And so they've been playing on average for more than 10 years, sometimes maybe 15 years, um, and they've often commenced their training before the age of 10, sometimes even before the age of 7. And we certainly know that there is this heightened plasticity of the young brain. It's particularly amenable to change in response to the environment. And so early training really, I guess, maximises that general feature of the brain. Um, And that's when we see these long-term effects. However, if we take a group of adult novice individuals, let's say they've never sung or they've never played, and we did this a group of adult novice singers, and we gave them all singing training. And we measured their brains before they started. And then after they'd done uh, a substantive singing training program, and we we cross-randomised them to either a singing or a drama group. And again, what we showed was that there were changes in the brains of the singers and they were functional changes. So they were at the level of the network starting to look more efficient and effective and organise themselves better. However, they weren't at the structural level. At this point, you know, after a briefer intervention in an adult, we hadn't seen changes in the density or the number of neurons devoted to a particular function. So I think the answer is complex because it depends when you began and the type of change that you're looking at. But if you're looking at any evidence of change, well, we can see that at any point in the lifespan. So it's never too late to begin. And it would be interesting, and it still hasn't been done yet, to show, you know, how novice adults might go on to look 20 years down the track. That's research that still needs to be undertaken. How do you actually do your research? Um, How do you measure the brainwaves of musicians or non-musicians? So we've used a range of different techniques that interrogate the functioning of the brain, and these are all standard techniques in that broader area of cognitive neuroscience that I was talking about before, as well as in clinical neuropsychology. And they're ways that we map these brain-mind-behaviour relationships One of the most common is using MRI. So the MRI scanner can take pictures of the brain functioning in vivo, and that's called functional MRI or fMRI. Another way you can do it is look at um, tracer uptake in different areas of the brain, and we've also done that on this particular occasion. That was a study with people with absolute pitch. And you can look at the the um, uptake of a particular tracer and its distribution in the brain and compare that across musicians or non-musicians. You can also measure, do what we call uh, volume measurement of particular structures so you can trace them out on the scan image and you can measure their size or the cortical thickness, how thick the neocortex is in a particular area. Then you can do um, more temporally based measurements where you use what's called EEG to take recordings of the brain, which is recordings of brain waves from the surface, um, the skull, and then make some uh, conclusions about which types of cognitive processes may be happening 
and we've reviewed the literature on that and there's a lot to show the different parts of the brain's response. You know, it has different components in those brain waves. But then there's also um, testing of people who have had brain injury. So I've worked with musicians, for instance, who might have had a stroke and have subsequently lost the ability to play the piano or they may have lost the ability to speak but they can still sing or vice versa. And then we look at where the damage is in the brain and we relate that to the types of deficits versus um, preserved skills and we make conclusions about the relevance of, you know, bits of the brain for different functions in music. So it's, you know, it's across all of those different types of studies that we make these broad um, conclusions that I'm talking about today. There's no doubt that our emotional well-being is sort of formulated with the, the soundtrack of our lives, but how is it used for other conditions? So really there's a broad range of ways that music has been uh, used therapeutically and I'm not a music therapist but I'm happy to speak in general about that literature. I think one of the most striking areas has been in the area of dementia and there's been great anecdotal evidence but also scientifically more robust evidence that people who might be quite along the track in terms of the stage of their dementia, meaning that they may be quite unresponsive to the world around them, nonetheless if you put on one of their early uh, favourite tracks from their, you know, use, they will literally come alive and become much more engaged and much more responsive. And it seems that in this sense, music can be neuroprotective or a little bit uh, immune to neurodegenerative processes or neurological damage. We did another study looking at people with epilepsy, and we've just done this one recently. And basically, it looked at people who'd had epilepsy all their life, and they were either musicians or non-musicians, and then it compared them to people without epilepsy who were either musicians or non-musicians. And what we found on all of the different tests that we give to people with epilepsy, maybe we're, we're thinking about they're going to have surgery for their epilepsy and they need to have an assessment. We might look at their memory and their language and their thinking to, to, to measure the impact that the surgery might have. And what we found was that in the musicians with epilepsy, that their performance on the memory and the language tasks was similar to the people without epilepsy, the non-musicians and the musicians without epilepsy, whereas the non-musicians with epilepsy, their performance was much lower on those memory and language tasks. And so here we can see that music is neuroprotective against neurological disease. And the, the, the mechanism we think that's going on, although we don't know for sure this needs more research, is that, you know, all of those systems that we talked about that are engaged in the brain when we're listening to music, well, they have transfer effects to other cognitive functions. And this is the link with music makes you smarter as well. You know, while you're listening to music, you're kind of giving your brain a general workout. You're not only... Um, exercising the music-related bits. You're also exercising your memory. You're exercising the language system. You're exercising all these other networks. And so that's what potentially is protective. It's based on that use it or lose it principle. 
Is there a genetic predisposition to music capability? I'm thinking of my own family. My father could dance and sing, although he had no training in either, but could hold a tune. He could even pick out a tune on the piano, even though he had no training, whereas my mother um, would not be able to hold a tune. She'd need to be taught how to hold a tune. So how does that work? It's a great question. And it's one that my research lab has just moved into more recently, and we've done two big studies, so I'll tell you about that. But I'll tell you the beginning of that journey because it is a a new area in the research literature. We did a study, you know, we were interested in this neuroplasticity issue about, um, you know, changes in the networks of the brain and how that relates to training. And I mentioned we'd been doing these singing studies Well, one of these studies took a group of singers, some of whom were highly trained opera singers, some who were what we call shower singers, so a bit like your dad, just naturally good at it, no training, sounded great, and then some who were very uh, clear, self-professed bad singers, and they were indeed bad singers. And we put them in the scanner and we gave them a range of singing and language tasks because we were actually interested in this study in the relationship between singing and language. Are these separate functions from an evolutionary perspective? Are they joined? And what does that tell us about the organisation of the human brain and the mind? Anyway, the result of this was that we found a very interesting result. The singers, the extremely well-trained singers, had their own independent singing network And it sat alongside the language network in their brains. Whereas the self-professed poor singers were literally singing with their language network. They didn't have a separate network that lit up when they were doing the singing task. It was the same language network. And so that was probably a good reason as to why they weren't good singers, because they were singing with their language network. And then that group in the middle, the natural group, They seemed to be a bit of a hybrid. They had their own network, but it just wasn't as developed or as strong as the opera singers. And so that led us to ask, you know, well, is this the training? Is it all about the environment? And it's kind of helped these people develop this new network, which we can see in these fMRI scans, or is it that they already had the network to begin with? So it's the chicken and egg, right? And so we then set about to do a study looking at the genetic determinants of singing. And our first study, we wanted to actually determine, is there a hereditary component to singing? Like you're alluding to with your dad, some people just seem to be able to do it. And we have, you know, anecdotes of musical families, you know, the Jackson Five, and I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. So that's exactly what we did. We did a big twin study with the Australian Twin Registry. This was a government-funded ARC grant where we have recruited over a 1,000 twins and they're either identical, that is, they share their same genes, or they're non-identical and they're like siblings. They only share half of their genes. And we gave them all singing tasks and we looked at the degree to which their pitch accuracy in singing, you know, the ability to hit the note, which is one of those core aspects of singing, was concordant or not. So how similar it was and whether that varied according to whether they were identical or non-identical. 
And on the basis of that data, we've, we've been able to show quite compellingly that there is a heritable component for singing. So it, it appears that some people are born with this predisposition. But what we also found, and this is data that we haven't yet published, so it's coming out soon and it's very exciting, is that there was a strong role in the model looking at the, you know, the statistical analysis of this data, there was a strong role for the environment as well. So it's the interaction of the two. And I guess that brings together that previous work that we've spoken about really nicely. What would you like to activate in society if I put you in charge of music for Australia? <laughs> well, that would be the first step, would be to look at music in schools and ensure that every child had the chance to really learn music in a systematic uh, way and to have a chance to play an instrument or to develop their voice, their singing voice, um, to be involved in group music making and to take the emphasis off expert performance or perfect performance because there's, I think, too much emphasis on that and that just leads to create anxiety and performance, performance anxiety in particular. To take the emphasis off that, off of that, and to focus on engagement and enjoyment. And you know, just like we have Oz Kick down at the park every Saturday morning, and we know that's great for developing uh, children's physical health, so too uh, we would argue that music has a similar beneficial effect for mental health. So imagine if we had routine family-based activities that engaged music and allowed children to feel comfortable singing and performing without that pressure of expertise or perfection, um, but that it was a natural part of our everyday life. Uh, these would be things that I think would help us as a community. And we've seen this during the COVID pandemic, right? When the community is put under stress and we can't connect it to each other as easily, we see people coming out onto their balconies and singing songs together and re-engaging that very primeval, basic biological drive to connect through music that we've carried with us through time. Um, and I, I think it's really important that we stay connected to our musical roots. Professor Sarah, what would you like the public to think next time we catch someone singing in the car or having a little mini dance move while wearing headphones? Well, I think, you know, the idea is it's to be encouraged and to join in if you can. You, you don't just have to sing in the car with the windows up. You can, you can wind the windows down. I agree. Join in. <laughs> <laughs> That's what someone did with me in the park the other day. Yeah. I was grooving to something with my headphones on and they started dancing with me even though they couldn't hear the music. <laughs> and I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> a brief encounter of uh, music without hearing it um, but letting the body go. Probably how easy you would have been able to make a connection with that person had you then sat down and had a chat to them afterwards because you'd already engaged a very kind of core biological system of synchronous behaviour that already made, made you more likely to want to help them and them seem more likeable to you in the process, right? Exactly. Professor Sarah Wilson, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk. Thank you to Professor Sarah Wilson, Head of School, Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. 
Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 8, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.